Welcome everyone to season 10 of Be Heard Talk with Selena Hill, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip hop, AOC, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, I discuss race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic black millennial perspective, and I give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave comments on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, and I will read them throughout this show. Happy Sunday, everyone. So I'm super excited to be here to discuss the biggest stories of the week, everything from the anniversary of the 1921 Tulsa uh, race massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We'll be talking about that to later on in the show, we'll be unpacking the impact that George Floyd's life and legacy and death has had on our world. Um, Please support Be Her Talk by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Be Her Talk. Your support through a small donation will help us to continue to support and amplify the issues that you care about. Now, without further ado, we're going to kick things off with the news roundup. This is the time where we unpack the stories that made you laugh, cry, or go on a profanity race Twitter rant. Okay, so for this segment, I'll be joined by Evan Mastronardi, who is the co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash. He is also a Bronx organizer for Rank the Vote NYC. How's it going, Evan? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me on, Selena, as always. And thanks for shouting out Rank the Vote NYC, everybody. Educate yourself on ranked choice voting. Elections coming up this primary. And please follow Let's Not Be Trash. We want to promote healthy masculinity and stand against sexism. Absolutely. And for the entire show, I'm going to be joined by Erica Cobb, who is a co-host on the national daytime talk show, Daily Blast Live. She is also host of the weekly podcast, Come Back with Erica Cobb. Thank you so much for joining us, Erica. Miss Selena Hill, thank you so much for having me today. I am honored. Yes, you're giving us life with the curls and the green. I love it. Yes, yes. I tried to be my best for this Sunday. Afternoon. Oh, we appreciate that. So I'm going to just throw things over to Evan to kick us off with the news roundup. All right. Well, thank you, Selena. As always, we like to discuss the stories that empowered us, made us happy, made us cry, made us, like I said, do that walk a flock of me more like, okay, and everything else in between. So first of all, very important date coming up. June 1st will mark the uh, 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. And uh, many people, this happened in 1921, where there was a strong middle class living in Tulsa called Black Wall Street, and it was destroyed by mobs and white mobs and aided abetted by law enforcement. Now, Oklahoma will also be commemorating this with the Black Wall Street Center, and we've seen the Tulsa Massacre discussed in as recently as shows such as Watchmen and others. But I have found that there is a immense lack of education about this massacre, about this evil chapter in American history of just violence and oppression and destroying black communities and destroying black people trying to receive what we have called the American dream. My first question to both of you, Selena and Erica, is when did you in your personal academic lives, first hear about the Tulsa massacre. And Selena and, and Erica, to both of you, when did you first do any sort of uh, reporting or journalism on this evil chapter in our history? 
Well, for me, Evan, I actually didn't hear about it until I took a trip to Tulsa back in 2018. And while there, I went to the grounds of Black Wall Street in Greenwood. And I spoke to local organizers. I spoke to elected officials. I even spoke to the mayor who told me that even as a historian, he didn't even know about the 1921 race massacre because there was a conspiracy of silence. After the uh, fire department, police officers and the KKK conspired to uh, um, devastate and just uh, bring the Black Wall Street to ruins, what they did was they erased it from you know, the library. They erased it from newspapers. There were so many people who never heard about what happened until their adult lives. Um, and it was it was really sad. And it's so funny because when I was, it's not funny, you know, when, when I was there and I was speaking to organizers, they were telling me like, you say, you say, we say like, look at this monument. That's named after one of the white conspirators or a KKK member who, you know, killed our, our ancestors and displaced thousands of people. So it was breathtaking. It was overwhelming. I was very emotional about what happened. I read, I wrote a piece for blackenterprise.com called America's a Silent Massacre. Uh, and just talking about this, I think that in recent years, um, we've been seeing much more coverage of what happened in 1921 to the original Black Wall Street and, and pop culture and news has been doing a better job of covering it. But yeah, it, it was hard. It was very hard when I finally found out in my adult life. Yeah, I found out through uh, Facebook reading about Black Wall Street. So it's amazing that Facebook can spread so much misinformation too. Erica, what about you? It was 20 years ago when I was in university. Um, I found or learned first heard of it in my African-American studies class. And it wasn't as though that was the focus of the entire conversation or curriculum. It was like a footnote, but that footnote was important enough that it resonated with me that I wanted to know why or how is it possible that we didn't know this until I was 20 years old? And really it comes down to this code of silence and secrecy, right? And there's for, for very different reasons. On the side of Tulsa and white residents and the um, history, of course, it was a PR issue. So you don't want people to know that this went down the way that it did. So it became mm -hmm. like almost like an urban legend for black people. They didn't want their descendants to feel as though this could happen to them. And then it would hinder, you know, their children trying to build their American dream. But ultimately what it really comes down to is the dismantlement of generational wealth, right? Mm -hmm. So we have these conversations and I think that by having this code of silence for so long and for really, I mean, it's interesting reason for Black people not to have been as vocal about it because it was also going to be something that could jeopardize their lives, their livelihoods again. And, you know, it was just something that was a, a sense of shame and terror. Like a lot of people have been traumatized mm -hmm. by this. So the idea that I was 20 when I found out about it and we're having these conversations now and Evan, you just mm -hmm. said you learned about it on social media really mm -hmm. tells you what the positive power of social media could be. Right. It's true. It's, it truly is a double-edged sword. And, you know, there are survivors of the Tulsa massacre and, yes. you know, black, black folks are the truth tellers of our history. 
we cannot rely entirely on white institutions because as you both mentioned, white institutions want to erase things in our history that would make us think, oh, this can happen here. So thank you both for sharing that. Selena. Yeah, Evan, I just wanted to point, do we have a clip of one of the survivors actually testifying about the race massacre that we could play? Okay. All right, yeah. We lost everything that day, our homes, our churches, our newspapers, our theaters, our lives. Greenwood represented all the best of what was possible for black people in America and for all, for all the people. No one cared about us for almost 100 years. We and our history have been forgotten, washed away. This Congress must recognize us and our history. For black America, for the white Americans, and for all Americans, I didn't know. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't know I was on mute. But yes, as we just saw, that was a survivor who was 100 plus years old. I think she was about 107 today. Mm -hmm. And she still recalls the terror and the trauma that her she went through, her community went through. So again, this this is something that the U.S. still needs to reckon with. Okay, it's not that long ago. You still have people who live through right. this massacre. And that's why we have to continue to address it. I mean, it's incredible to deny something that took so many lives and that injured so many people to deny or to withhold something. You know, if, it thought, if, if hundreds of white people died in one place, could you imagine this country ever not knowing about it? I mean, that's, that's what the power, as Erica mentioned, that's what the power of social media can do today. But think of this also testifies to all the things that happened when there was no video. There was no way to capture these things. That's why we can't just believe video. We have to believe in the fundamental oppression and racism that's happened and still happening. Uh, Erica, did you want to add something? Yeah. I mean, so we just watched, I think that was Viola Fletcher. She's 107 years old. So that's a testimony at the House Civil Rights and uh, Civil Liberties Commission yeah. for Congress. And the idea is that there could be possible compensation in the form of restitution or other forms of justice for not only the survivors, but also descendants of survivors. Well, the issue is Tulsa Centennial Commission actually has raised $30 million on their names and on their stories. So why is it that these three survivors ranging in age between 100 and 107 are still struggling to have their daily basic needs met? Where has this money gone? And then when we talk about Governor Stitt, who had to be removed from said commission for passing a bill recently to say that certain race and racial issues cannot be taught in public schools. I mean, it really shows you that we have not moved very far from what the fundamental idea of the dismantlement of Black Wall Street was about. And that's the reason why it's so important right now in Black households that we are having conversations about estate and legacy planning, even if mm -hmm. you have very little in your mind to plan for. It is so important to build this as a family. Absolutely. This was attack on the social mobility of Black Americans, and this was attack uh, all of our education about the oppression of black Americans and continues to be. Let's move now to another situation that was 
in many ways aided and abetted directly, but just as this was, but on a camera by law enforcement. And that is the shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. last month. So we saw there was images of this happening that was finally uh, more released for a while. It wasn't released and finally the public was able to see more. This man driving away from police who stopped him for some drug related purpose, but then drove away from police to be shot and killed. So DA, the DA of that county in North Carolina, uh, Andrew Womble, the sheriff, he acquitted or chose not to indict, I should say. The sheriff's deputies who were involved in this clear shooting towards a black man evading police. And one of the things he said is that essentially a vehicle driving in any direction around police is a threat to police. Any, what type of precedent does that set? It doesn't matter if it's driving away, it doesn't matter if it's maybe, you know, a certain amount of distance away that doesn't pose an immediate threat. It, it doesn't have to be a vehicle driving to the police. That is such a blank slate for cops to, do, to, to shoot an abuse force in any type of situation mm -hmm. involving a vehicle. Civic leaders are now putting pressure on Attorney General Garland to investigate as federal government has before for civil rights violations committed by this sheriff's department as it has before, like in Ferguson, when it found clear violations that the city and state would not. So two questions, I'm gonna start with you, Erica. Do you believe that the Justice Department will intervene and that it will intervene in a meaningful way? And the second part is, what type of precedent did this, this uh, DA just set about where a vehicle drives in relation to the police? Um, I have learned not to um, give the credit of people doing the right thing in these situations. Uh, we really need to take a very hard look at Andrew Womble. He is an opportunist politically and a snake in the grass. He's known by the Dare County uh, Democratic Party as Andy Wobble because this is a man who started off as a lifelong Democrat. He changed his political affiliation to unaffiliated when um, I believe it was uh, uh, Frank Parrish, uh, who was the DA at the time, he was basically saying out loud, maybe I won't run in 2014. Andy Wobble, decides to then become unaffiliated so that he could uh, finish out Parrish's term. That's when he became a Republican. He never ever on actually physically moved into the district, only on paper. He will do anything in order to have his political ambitions met. I think that he is someone that we should be taking a very hard look at and we should be watching all of his new, all of his moves because in the end, he's gonna do whatever it takes in order to gain political power. Mm. Thank you. Selena, how do you think the political power has factored into this decision? And what are the ramifications of this regardless of uh, political uh, yeah. motives? Yeah, he's he's running an election. He's, he's trying to win an election and as uh, trying to win this political clout. But I mean, if we just look at the facts here, um, you know, Andrew was shot in the back of the head um, and they still haven't even released all of the police footage. Just believe your eyes in this case. There's, I mean, I'm so upset by the decision that he came to and the fact that they are, are the family is still begging for the footage to be released. We actually have a clip 
of that footage. Uh, let, let's play that clip. Are they in Iraq? This I mean, is an American suit citizen. That, that was an execution. A, that was an execution. And first of all, you can see you can see in the footage he is driving away. He posed no harm to the officers. If any, if if five to ten police off police officers and military gear came at me with military weapons, I'm running away too. I I, I just. It's just we have to really, really reexamine policing in this country. And I know we're going to speak about this later when we unpack the George Floyd legacy. But the time is now because it just keeps happening over and over. I mean, the DA basically said anything involving a vehicle is justification to shoot, which I mean, I'm sure there are other DAs that will second that around the country. But that is tremendously dangerous, oppressive precedent i mean and, think of all of the situations that could that happen uh, go ahead um mark hex byanton left a comment via linkedin he says do all white people act the same way the answer is of course not but one way african americans have traditionally def defined themselves is in opposition to the dominant white coat Ooh, i didn't mean to read that one but um uh not really sure where you're going with that point, but I will say this, that white people have been caught running away and attacking mm -hmm. police officers on camera and they always survive. Right. You see the police officers right. verbally using verbal command, stop, don't do this, or even running away from them. There's a video went viral of a white man trying to hit an officer and that officer put his gun back in the holder and ran away. So there's a clear discrimination here. Right. We have to ask, what is the body cam footage for? Because ultimately it was supposed to be a part of accountability. Now we have a situation where large parts of the video have been redacted. Now, if they aren't going to prosecute or even penalize any of the officers involved in this shooting, then why can't we get the full video because the parts that weren't redacted still seem very incriminating to the officers that they didn't do the right thing. And the idea that this was a man who was unarmed and now because he drove away, his vehicle was considered the weapon. Let's see, we've had cell phones, cigarettes. What else can be a weapon at this point? So let's just call it for what it is. This was inappropriate, excessive, violent policing and we witnessed an execution. So why can't we see the, the, the video in totality? I, I mean, living in New York City, I've had closer encounters with a car being completely unarmed and, and, and that car, even as close to any, any sort of distance with the officer is moving at like five miles an hour. So there's no, there's no immediate threat here. There's just cops waiting for a reason to pull that trigger. That's what that was. One of the scariest things I heard once was someone say, well, so what's supposed to happen if I don't shoot? Then the person gets away. And I was like, yeah, they get away alive. It's almost like the notion of 
killing or hurting someone is the only thing that closes your deal as a police in that situation. It's almost like the person getting away but living secondary. I mean, just an absolute uh, erasure of someone's humanity. I want to go to a different story now, a bit lighter in some senses, a bit in, in other senses, not so much, but it's a, a story of bravery. Billy Porter, the star of Pose, revealed, I saw this Instagram post, that he has been HIV positive now uh, for a long time, I believe over 10 years. And he, he said, I didn't realize that my role was almost a surrogate. His role is also playing a man who has AIDS. And he's, he asked himself, I saw one of the quotes, why am I alive? I'm, will, I'm living to tell this story. I find this an incredibly brave admission. He did not have to say this. Of course, there will be people who will comment. There always are, especially with the stereotypes with HIV and the gay community. But uh, first, I want to ask Selena. Selena, you've interviewed a lot of celebrities. You've, you've talked to a lot of people um, in, in, in various different industries. Where does this stand on a, a brave admission to the public um, that a celebrity made uh, that, that you've seen? Yeah, I, I feel like you've indicated that perfectly, um, Evan. You know, not only is he uh, a celebrity, he's a gay black man who has is courageous enough to talk about being diagnosed as HIV positive 14 years ago. And in that interview, he talked about the shame that he felt and that shame kept him silent and that he did not want to fall into the stigma, right? There's still a strong stigma attached to those who are HIV positive, particularly in the black community and particularly those who identify with the LGBTQ community. So I applaud Billy Porter for speaking up and speaking out and letting folks know that you know, this is a real thing. HIV, AIDS, it does exist, but you can continue to, to thrive. You can continue to have a career. You can continue to live your life. And it's up to us as society to stop shaming folks so that they can get the healing that they need, both physically and emotionally. I Absolutely. Eric, yeah, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, I mean, Selena, this is an amazing comeback story, but it's also a moment of truth. Billy talked about having for 14 years a pain in his stomach. Like when you have something that you're holding on to, when you're you're hiding your truth, a part of your identity, that can actually cause you pain. It can cause your health to deteriorate. And also he talked about survivor's remorse, but he also alluded to the idea of not being transparent made him feel like a fraud. Season one, episode four, I am a huge Pose fan. Okay. So pray tell gets his diagnosis and Tamron Hall during that interview asked uh, Billy, was that you or was that pray tell as the character? And he said that that scene was exactly how it went down when he received his diagnosis. And I really, I, I felt so great about that interview because I know it's going to be freeing for so many people. You have to consider that this is a community that has had AIDS and HIV prayed and wished upon them, that they've been told for generations that this is God's punishment for being gay. So for him to speak his truth is also for him to elevate and allow others to speak and live in their truth. And it's about time that this is happening. And I really commend him for coming forward. Absolutely. He shows how much you can live and glow and thrive, um, even with such a diagnosis. Uh, thank you both for that. Let's, okay, 
let's get, discuss now something uh, uh, very, very interesting that has popped up that the Biden administration is uh, incentivizing being vaccinated through uh, dating apps. And uh, it basically allows you to get features of a paid user. Uh, it boosts you, it makes your profile more noticeable if you uh, can prove you were vaccinated and put that on a profile. Uh, I have seen this. I have uh, at some different parts of my life been in the dating apps game. And at, you know, at one point I did put, uh, you know, at least that I wear a mask and, and, and later vaccinated. But what, what do we think about this? Do we think it's a, it's a good idea to encourage it through this means? Of course it is. They're also incentivizing folks to get vaccinated through flights. I mean, look, I'm happy that the Biden administration teamed up with um, dating apps so that folks who are itching to get out and about, mix and mingle, um, are, are safe and aren't uh, you know, spreading COVID around. So, I mean, it makes sense. Um, it's a more unconventional means or methods, mm -hmm. but this is how people are socializing and communicating. They're meeting on dating apps and mm -hmm. then they meet up in person. So if you want to, you know, meet that special someone, they're basically saying you need to get the vaccine. I think this is hilarious, um, but it's also obviously quite needed. I, in the interest of transparency, am an elder millennial. Um, so I never was a part of the dating app generation. I've been married for some time now. So this isn't necessarily my demographic, but I can totally understand if I were on a dating app and I'm vaccinated, I would want it to be very easy mm -hmm. to find people who are vaccinated. But mm -hmm. also, I know people have a lot of different reasons for why they've chosen not to get vaccinated or why they ch have chosen to get vaccinated. But at the end of the day, the way that some people went about this whole mask thing for the past year, it makes me seriously question how else they don't protect themselves. Mm. So that school of thought that people want to know that you are finding someone that aligns with the way that you choose to protect yourself. If you don't believe in Rona, do you believe in rubbers? <laughs> I mean, like, if, if like, guys, I'm, I'm gonna go back on Chet Hanks and say, if we want to make this a thought boy summer, we really, really gotta step our vax game up. And there's so much you could do. Like, what was it? Vax, wax. I think I don't know if I can say the last part. I'll just say ready to flax. I'll just do that one. Um, anyway, put it in your profile. Get vaccinated. All right, we gotta go to the last one now, and that is the the ceasefire. Uh, between Israel and Palestine, specifically between the IDF and Hamas. Uh, this was after, it, this happened Friday morning after weeks of violence, including at Sheikh Jarrah and Al-Aqsa Mosque, where uh, Israeli forces just stormed in on, on worshipers. And uh, the violence has claimed hundreds of Palestinians. It also has claimed, uh, I believe, close to a dozen Jews. And it has truly uh, reignited the conflict and the reasons for the conflict in the eyes of American citizens. And I think in good ways, understanding of how damaging and oppressive the occupation is. Uh, in addition to that, uh, a media building was also bombed. So it's also an attack if you believe in freedom of press. But do we think that this, two things. One, do we think that this time, because there's been so many rounds of violence, have more people been involved in understanding the oppressive nature of the occupation and why the occupation of uh, the Palestinian territories must end? And also, do we think this ceasefire is meaningful? 
Absolutely, it's meaningful. Um, I mean, how many more Palestinians have to die? They don't have access to water. Uh, they're, they're in rubble. Um, we've seen even the press, Al Jazeera, been targeted in this. Uh, I mean, it was just a matter of time. It was heart-wrenching to see all of this violence. So um, the least we could do is, is to intervene, to have this intervention, and to have some type of ceasefire for now. But we need a long-term solution. I, I know we don't have time yes. to talk about that, um, Evan, and I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on the ceasefire. Sure, I just want to get, Erica, did you, what do you think about the knowledge of the occupation? Do you think there's better knowledge of that after this round of violence or, or is it the same kind of uh, stances people are taking? I think um, in this era right now, what we're seeing is um, we see what's happened on the cellular level historically, um, where the pain and the discourse and distrust lie. But we're also seeing, again, the social media component, um, the idea that we are spreading and disseminating information, good, bad, neutral. Um, and that's how people are learning about what's happening in the world. I find it interesting that both sides, as of the ceasefire ending on Friday morning, have both claimed victory in some respects. So I think Ultimately, it comes down to what this fundamentally is all about and how this will move forward from this point. Absolutely. Um, and I just wanted to, before we close, I just wanted to add some, some statements. This ceasefire ultimately is just a Band-Aid over a deep wound between peoples, land, culture. Both have lost lives over this con conflict, but there will never be peace without some concessions. And there will never be concessions without a change in rhetoric, perspective, and international pressure, especially from the U.S. and the U.K. First, we must declare this an end to this occupation. That must be the stance of all world powers. It's against human rights and akin to creating a situation of separate and, and unequal, which we know all too well in this nation. We also know, we also must understand that we can love Jewish people while criticizing the actions of the Israeli government and military. It is not anti-Semitic to make these criticisms just as we can love all the peoples of America, including its Christian majority population and criticize the United States and not be anti-Christian, which many of us are gonna do every time on this show because it's necessary. If we're about human rights, let's be consistent or else we ain't really about it to begin with. And that's the news roundup. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, Evan, we always appreciate hearing your take um, on everything that you just said. So. Now it's time for me to actually talk about some of the stories that made me say, really? And for some reason, I really, the script on my monitor has disappeared. So give me one second with these technicals. Um, we're going to have to make it make sense also in one second. Just give me what you know what, Evan, come back on, talk about Israel and Palestine, and let me get this tech together. You want me to? Okay. Um, absolutely. I think it's I think it's really important. What I see a lot is the equation of of where does anti-Semitism come into play here? Anti-Semitism is a global problem. Jewish uh, hate crimes and black hate crimes are always at the top of our hate crimes in the U.S. Absolutely an issue, but we should not conflate it with the criticism of Israel. Israel is committing war crimes. It is oppressing Palestinians. We would not want anyone in our nation treated this way. Have, if anyone just Googles Gaza, look at the living conditions, regardless of a ceasefire, that Palestinians must live in every single day, Palestinian children living in rubble. Imagine 
children living in rubble. This is a human humanitarian crisis first and foremost, human rights crisis first and foremost. If we believe in that, we must hold the Israeli military accountable. Thank you for that, Evan. And we stand in solidarity with Palestine. So back to the stories that made me say really this week. First off, reports show that less than half of the NYPD have gotten at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Really? Guess that's more, guess that's one more thing to add to the list of what New York City cops are supposed to do when they say they serve and protect us, right? Look, actions speak louder than words and 35% of the force being vaccinated is just not good enough. This is a public safety matter. And we've seen countless photos of vid and videos of officers not following COVID protocols like social distancing or wearing masks when dealing with the public. The city's failure to mandate vaccinations within the police force is irresponsible and really not surprising. It's sad. Another story that has, I think a lot of us saying really, is what the Supreme Court may actually do. Uh, they are trying to overturn, they may overturn Roe versus Wade, right? So Roe versus Wade was a landmark decision where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the U.S. Constitution protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excess government restriction. And yet, since that ruling, women have continued to be villainized and attacked by conservatives and the evangelical right wing, while the state government continued to play the role of the vagina police. Earlier this week, the justices announced that they will take on the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization over a 2018 Mississippi law that banned abortions after just 15 weeks of pregnancy with no exceptions for rape or incest, which may give the conservative leaning court the opportunity to overturn Roe versus Wade. Look, this is about protecting a woman's reproductive rights. And there really aren't enough reallys in the world for me to try to comprehend this one. And then lastly, Robert Williams, a 43-year-old father in the Detroit suburb of Farmington Hills, was wrongfully arrested last year based on police facial recognition software. And now he's suing as he said. Prosecutors dropped the charges nearly two weeks later, but the damage was already done. This case will help to fuel criticism of police investigators' use of controversial technology that has shown to perform worse on people of color. Really? Racist AI? It just doesn't stop. And you know what? We're not shocked. Really. And now, before we jump into our main segment, where we will unpack the life, the legacy, and the brutal murder of George Floyd, I need to make something make sense that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that despite Joe Budden's checkered history of domestic abuse allegations and toxic work behavior, he continues to thrive, pivot, and explain his way out of troubling accusations. Now, Joe lit his latest firestorm of controversy earlier this month when he fired his longtime podcast co-hosts, Rory and Mal, on an episode of the Joe Budden podcast after they voiced frustration with Budden over a lack of respect and transparency in their business dealings. 
Then last week, DJ Olivia Dope accused the 40 year old rapper turned podcaster of sexual harassment in a 25 minute Instagram video where she explained why she left her role as a co-host on the women led podcast. See, the thing is, which is on Joe Budden's podcast network. So in the video, Olivia says that Joe made her feel mortified and humiliated by sexually objectifying her throughout a taping of an on-air podcast back in January. Olivia says Joe repeatedly made comments about wanting to have sex with her and he used very crude language too, by the way, that I can't even repeat. And then he thrusted his hips at her when she gave him a hug. Let's play a clip from Olivia's video. On January 18th, 2021, Joe Budden sat in on a recording of the female-led podcast I was a part of and continuously made sexual suggestive remarks to me that made me extremely uncomfortable as well as fearful of dampening the mood if I didn't laugh along while he made those sexual remarks to me. Um, those moments were not only, <clears throat> excuse me, those moments not only live on the internet forever, it also forced me in the decision of quitting the podcast. No one should ever feel comfortable enough to speak the way that person spoke to me, ever. No one should ever feel comfortable enough to make a workplace environment completely hostile and toxic the way that person did. No one should ever feel like they can be sexually explicit and suggestive, not only to you while you're coming in just trying to work, but also in front of the entire production staff to belittle you. So one of the things that really struck me about Olivia's testimony is how she said at one point she was embarrassed by Joe's behavior. And that made me think like, well, Joe was the perpetrator here, right? He was the one who was acting inappropriately. And yet and still she was the one made to feel embarrassed. And this also reminds me of how so many women, especially black women, feel we felt we've been in Olivia Dope's shoes. We feel like we can't speak up because number one, a lot of times we don't want to jeopardize our jobs and our livelihoods. And number two, we don't want to cast the black men in our own community in a bad light. But my question is this, are we even surprised that Olivia Dope is calling Joe Budden out for sexual harassment? Are we surprised that he made crude, sexually suggestive remarks and inappropriate gestures about her on air? And are we surprised that after issuing a apology, Joe Bunnan has went on to make jokes about how he wants to have sex with the women he hires? No, we're not surprised because the red flags were there all along. Several of Joe Budden's celebrity exes from Esther Baxter to Tahiri to Sin Santana have accused him of being abusive. Plus, he's extremely chauvinistic, sexist, and prone to slut shaming and disrespecting women. For me, Joe Budden represents a very old, tired, and outdated part of hip hop that refuses to evolve with the times. 
So I hope that Joe will take this latest saga to actually take a seat. I'm glad he's in therapy, but he's a self-sabotaging douchebag who needs to be held accountable because at this point in his career, it just doesn't make sense. And now on that note, we are going to keep things moving to unpack the biggest story that has, I think, one of the biggest stories of our lifetimes, which has changed so much, George Floyd and his legacy. You know, I'll never forget the first time I watched George Floyd dying as a white police officer ruthlessly kneeled on his neck for nearly 10 minutes while he pleaded for his life. I remember screaming at my computer, begging the officer to spare this poor man's life. I was horrified, traumatized, and visibly shaken. And then a few days later, George Floyd's death became the climax in a parable of America's painful narrative of racial violence. His death became a global rallying point for action that resonated far beyond Minnesota where he died. His death disrupted every aspect of American life, from politics to business to culture and sports. It forced our country to reckon with the issues of systemic racism and particularly how it's been embedded in the institutions of policing. So without further ado, I'm gonna have this conversation with Erica and with Evan, our correspondent. And I wanna start by asking you this, Erica, what impact has George Floyd's murder and the conviction of the former officer Derek Chauvin really had on the country? Uh. That is a very loaded question. Um, you know, the conviction, it's its interesting to me because I really thought when Chauvin was convicted that I would have a sense of relief. I didn't have a sense of relief. What it made me think about was all of those unarmed Black men and women who have died at the hands of police and will never, ever see justice. Their family will never see justice. I was really fearful that there was this celebration that meant everything's okay. And we know everything isn't okay because a matter of hours later, what a 16 or 14 year old girl was shot by police just moments after Chauvin was convicted. So I think ultimately what it did was it created an outcry that people were on the same page who generally would have remained silent. And that resonated in America and it resonated across the world because people were taking their own forms of Black Lives Matter and inserting the narrative in through George Floyd so that they could have their voices amplified as well. So if anything, it really showed us on a more aesthetic level who was really with us and who's against us. Agreed. Evan, your thoughts on George Floyd's legacy? Oh, I, I hope that it steers justice, whatever that can look like in the current constraints of our government, uh, in a positive way. Um, my concern with the Chauvin verdict is that if it set a precedent, was that precedent just an absurd precedent, which is essentially there must be a lynching on camera for someone, for a police officer to be convicted for crimes like that. It should not be that. I mean, because look, you have that verdict and then 
weeks later, what we just heard from North Carolina, from the DA saying, well, if the car is moving in any direction, it's justified. So these two uh, thoughts are existing in the same country towards the lives of black people. It's, it's racism and it's arbitrary. So I think we should all value George Floyd's life. And I'm glad the family got some semblance of justice and we should never take that away from them regardless of the broader context. But I think there's so much work left to be done. So much dismantling essentially of the current way the police operates. If we in the same breath can also say, as long as there's a car moving, a black life doesn't truly matter. So Habib Thompson left a comment via LinkedIn saying, Oh, do we have Habib Thompson's comment? LinkedIn. No impact at all because white supremacy hires police to do just that knee on the neck of black rights progression and right to live freely. So basically I'm look, I would say this definitely progress has taken place since George Floyd uh, has passed, but we need so much more to Evan's point. Uh, Andrew Brown Jr., who we talked about in the earlier segment, was shot and killed a year later. So was Micaiah Bryant, and the list goes on and on. But one of the points of progression that we've actually seen since his death, his murder actually, was the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Um, so this bill, it aims to end certain police techniques like chokeholds and other forms of potentially deadly force. The bill also seeks to improve police training and invest in community programs designed to improve policing and promote equitable new policies. However, one of the most controversial elements of the bill is the end of qualified immunity for police, which makes it difficult to sue individual officers. Evan, why is it important for Congress to pass not only this George Floyd policing bill that includes qualified immunity, but also make sure that it has the qualified immunity uh, restrictions in there? And, and why do you think that's even controversial in the first place? Because, because police know that once qualified immunity is dismantled, they can be held accountable for a lot more of the actions that they just find absolutely ingrained in their basis of policing. One of the reasons that police were so upset when we started calling out police brutality, I always said is people weren't even saying that then but defund the police. Uh, the, most of the rallying cries were and police brutality, but you already had police opposing that. Why? It must mean that your vision of policing is inherently brutal, that you cannot separate the two. So that was very telling. So if you take out qualified immunity, more aspects of police um, oppression and abuse, now the public can see and now the public can sue and hold them accountable for those actions. And then they won't need such a heinous uh, precedent, hopefully, as what happened to George Floyd in order for them to be held accountable. Um. Erica, what are your thoughts on the George Floyd Policing Act? Um, one thing I didn't mention was that it actually passed in the Democratic-led um, House, but it's, it's being held up in the Senate. 
I think the goal here would have been to pass it before uh, George Floyd's, uh, the anniversary of his death came up, but it looks like we're definitely not going to meet that deadline. How, how do you feel about the bill? And, and how do you feel about the fact that it's taking so long to actually pass this type of police reform? Well, you know, I think that there are a lot of issues um, that play a part in this. Um, we still have, we just are one year into the blue wall being somewhat crossed by police officers who are speaking out because I think the sentiment for common sense police officers, common sense policing, um, is that by having uh, the lack of qualified or qualified immunity on the table holds their colleagues accountable because ultimately, if this is happening, that means that their lives are in danger and so are their families' lives. So I think that we're having a much more open conversation about this. I understand why you would uh, say that you were hoping the bill would pass before the one-year mark of George Floyd's death. At this point, I think that it's important that we look at why folks aren't crossing the aisle, the narratives that are being perpetuated in order to not support this bill. And ultimately, when the bill does pass, and hopefully it will, will that bring change that communities can see and feel in the moment? Because a lot of people feel as though a lot of these conversations are just that conversations, and they're not actually seeing the actions behind them. I and mean, we just watched a very brutal video of policing, which was really the military, uh, I mean, military for Andrew Brown Jr. So yes, um, I think some people can't actually have two different schools of thought. It's the brutalization of citizens by police for some people. Absolutely. So we actually have Mike Muse joining us for this very special conversation. Mike Muse is a political and policy expert who served as a member of President Obama's National Finance Committee. Mike is also the co-founder of Law Champs, an organization that helps people find lawyers for personal business matters and advocates for access to justice, social and legal reform. How's it going, Mike? Hey, what's happening? How are you? So sorry for the delay. The link I had was a different link um, than with the guys that you were using. So I apologize, but you guys are having a fantastic, robust conversation. So sorry to come in on the tell-in, Selena. So good to see you, my friend. <laughs> it is so good to see you, Mike. It happens. I had so many technical difficulties this show. It is all good. So Mike, we, we are super happy to, to have you here. We know you have, you're an Obama alum. Uh, one of the questions I just posed to Erica was, you know, this legislation, it, it's being held up in the Senate as of now, um, how do you think that that sort of bodes? Like what are the optics around the fact that we still haven't been able to pass the George Floyd uh, policing reform bill on a federal level and this man was killed nearly a year ago? Yeah, it just, it just shows the partisanship that we have in, in Congress uh, and with our elected officials. It also too just goes to show how difficult race um, and race dynamics and race complexity is. It also too just shows like the widening gap that we have between um, policing and community um, and where we stand with police reform and, and where we are with that. Uh, the margins are just so slim, um, one within the House. Um, the House only, the Democrats only control the House by like, around five House seats. Um, and that is on the margin. Like, if anyone was to get sick or if anyone was not to be available, that will cut 
the House Democrats' uh, size down significant, significantly um, in terms of the negotiation part, part, um, prospects. And we look at the Senate, uh, the Senate is split 50-50, uh, with Vice President Kamala Harris being a tie-breaking vote. And so the margins in the Senate is very slim. And so what we're seeing right now is exactly the sausage-making process of Congress in terms of how things get done with negotiations perspective. Um, and so there are these things that Republicans just aren't willing to, to concede on. Um, and there are things that the Democrat Party just isn't willing to give up. Um, and so you essentially have a, a deadlock Senate um, that's why it's the challenge is so difficult from a process uh, perspective because the numbers just aren't there coupled with what I just outlined. Yeah, and you know, it's sad because we had so much political momentum on the ground and the world was rallying around justice for George Floyd. And now it's literally like up to a, a few people in, in the Senate to, to actually put this, to put something into fruition. But, you know, my question for you, Mike, is, you know, we have a political moment here, right? And I feel like with the anniversary coming up, we still have so much leverage to make systemic change. What could and should we be doing so that this man's life and death does not go down in vain and that we will protect more black and brown lives moving forward? I think the, the challenge, I think we spent a lot of time focusing on the federal government um, from the Senate um, and from the House and the presidency. Uh, I think those are important, but it really comes down to the local offices. The local offices matter the most um, when it comes to that. And I started a nonprofit initiative called Bull Quadrant, where a strategic voting system and solution in order to stop police brutality. Um, and that is focusing on the mayor and the district attorney, uh, the judge. Um, and the police chief, although the police chief is an elected, is appointed by the mayor and my system. I talk about how you gauge your mayoral candidate and ask questions as if that mayoral candidate is running for police chief. Uh, we focus so much on the federal government, but the change really starts um, on the ground and it's not complicated. The, the solution is very simple. It's just to vote that that way and that be that strategic and to become a single issue voter. Uh, once we start paying more attention, because far too often we let our judges go by um, without actually looking at their record, judicial candidates go by without actually looking at their record, looking at their positions, you know, what, and you can't ask a judge, a judicial candidate, you know, how they will rule on, on a certain case. But what you do is you ask them questions about their lived experiences. You get to know who they are. You get to know the character of who that judge is and how they would serve on the bench. The district attorney, you have to be very specific in the types of questions that you ask the district attorney, uh, but we just haven't focused so much on that because we always are so focused on the shiny objects on the Hill, uh, which is the president of the United States and senators and all that kind of good stuff, which is great and it's fantastic as we should, um, but the senator cannot convene a grand jury. Uh, the governor of your state cannot try the case. Uh, the president of the United States of America could not oversee a hearing. Uh, and so it's time that we put the power in our own hands and really understand what that looks like um, from a local level. And then I look at like economic justice. I look at changing the, uh, the justice system, uh, criminal justice reform from a very basic platitude of economics. Uh, far too often, black and brown people just don't have the means and economics to afford a defense attorney um, in order to fight for them, uh, to fight for it, to make sure they don't even have to have or post bail, to make sure they don't even have to spend one night in jail or spend one hour in jail. 
Uh, God bless all the public defenders that are out there, but the public defenders are just overworked and under-resourced. And so oftentimes what you see is that they are often uh, doing uh, negotiations and plea agreements for individuals to face either five years or 25 years. Um, if someone is innocent, uh, they definitely don't want to face 25 years. And so they actually will settle for a guilty plea for five because they know they don't have the money uh, to fight this case. And another public defender isn't willing to go there. Um, that's why I created Law Champ with my co-founder, Jennifer and Drew, um, in order for us to look at it from an economical means and to make sure that everyone, no matter what city, state, rural, county that you are in, uh, can have access to attorney. Uh, what makes mm. us so unique is that we focus on solo uh, practitioners and small firms um, in order in an effort to keep the cost and the price low and to make sure that people have access to a reputable attorney um, using our AI and our technology to access them no matter what state, city, rural, county, community that they live in. Uh, we're more than just criminal justice. We do IP, intellectual property. Intellectual property is social justice. Uh, your trademark, your copyright Absolutely. is social justice. And so those are all the things that I think uh, to answer uh, that question, which is a very broad question, but a good question. It is. Um, are all the things that um, kind of help make sure that George Floyd's life isn't in vain. So Carl A. Callum left a comment via Facebook. He says, we're also still waiting on that anti-lynching law, which is true. And Prophet Robinson also left a comment via LinkedIn. Prophet Robinson says, America has to change their mindset towards Black people along with concrete, real legislation. Erica? Yeah, Mike, first of all, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this idea that I've been hearing this narrative. Has Blackness been redefined in the past year since the killing of George Floyd and the social justice movement? So when we're talking about taking it from the political realm, especially at the highest levels to boots on the ground, local or even societal and interpersonal communications, what can we be doing as a quote, Black community in order to be more united when there's so many different narratives, because people obviously have the, um, you know, the agendas or the talking points that are most crucial to them. So how can we present a more united front? Well, great question. It's so great to meet you, Erica. Uh, thank you for that question. I love your background. You definitely have a very <laughs> cool and comfortable and cozy background. Uh, I mean, that's a great question too, as well. Um, Look, these questions are, are just, you can never have an answer really. Um, and so I love just kind of just talking through different things um, just because it means so many different things for so many different people. But the biggest thing is for people to, um, to educate ourselves uh, on what the issues are and to educate ourselves in the process. Um, a lot of times our education comes through Twitter um, and that's just not a good educational source. I'm not knocking Twitter. Um, Twitter is a great platform to express and to vent and to, to emote. Uh, but too often we take uh, what's said on Twitter as Bible. Um, and also too, Twitter isn't a place to have nuanced conversation and nuanced understanding. I um, mean, so I say off to say to kind of land the plane in a very succinct and short kind of way, it's, it's important for us to educate ourselves on the issues, look at the nuance of the issues, look at the nuance of the issues from a, a social aspect, from an economic aspect, um, and then from a political policy aspect, and then look at it from a procedural process aspect of it. Um, a lot of times we're just waiting for one person to save us. We are waiting for that one leader. Um, we're waiting for that one senator. We're waiting for that one president. Um, and really understanding that we are the change that we want to see. I think Black people, for the first time, realize the power of our vote. 
I was amazing on all my media platforms on Sirius XM and ABC. The number one question I always would get prior to 2016 was, my vote doesn't count, it doesn't matter, electoral college, and all the misnomers and tropes that comes with that. Yes, it's all those things, electoral college. I'm not even here to debate that. But how we do it today, <laughs> the majority of the state, whatever the majority of the vote is, allocates those votes, and that's how it becomes a president. And what we saw is that the Black people turned out heavily in Milwaukee, <clears throat> Milwaukee County, and Detroit, Philadelphia, Atlanta, but more particular in the rural counties of Atlanta, of Georgia, which is also black. And so for the first time that we saw our vote, how it was able to turn um, and for our favor. And so I think that now we recognize that really the power of the vote, the power of one vote and my one vote can make a difference. I think we're seeing that unlocking for the first time. And so now it's up to us to take that momentum in order to educate ourselves in the process. And when we educate ourselves in the process, we'll understand who to elect, who to nominate, right? Who to support, who to give money to, who to donate to, to ensure that those right people uh, to address the issue that you have about redefining blackness. It can't be defined singularity just because we all have so many different lived experiences. You know, blackness being something different for so many of us. Um, but it's also about we need to start having that, that single issue um, that we can rally around and then figure out the processes for that. So we do have to bring this conversation to a close. But before we do, I just want to get just final remarks and just a few seconds, Evan, on how we move forward. We all watch this man's public lynching. We've been, we've protested. Uh, we, we went to the polls. We voted. But we need and want real change. What does that look like, Evan? Final thoughts. Thank you. I'm going to try to keep this a few seconds. I was at that Washington, D.C. protest. Also, Mike, real pleasure to meet you. Hope to continue connecting. Um, we need to focus on local policing because we cannot wait on the feds. We need to act in ways that refocuses public safety to communities. And that can be done on a local level, on investing in our local communities and on pressuring local activists and local uh, officials to do so. On the federal level, we need to pass the BREATHE Act. We need to brand it as revolutionizing, reimagining, and innovating public safety because it will divest our tax dollars from prisons, from law enforcement. It will take cops out of places they shouldn't be in the first place, like schools, and it will put mental health professionals at the front line. And also, I just wanted to end with, I saw a comment about uh, LGBTQ issues being separate from these, and I want to completely say that's wrong. Protecting black communities means protecting LGBTQIA people. The protection of black communities means protecting black life and black humanity and black humanity is equal throughout gender and who you love. So that's important to remember in any of these conversations. Thank you for that. Erica, what are your final thoughts in the last few seconds that we have? Evan, I appreciate you addressing that comment. I think that is a part of the uh, social component, especially when it comes to social media. It's interesting to me that when we're talking about white supremacy, we have multiple organizations who have a lot of different messages out there, but their message that's fundamental that brings them all together is who the enemy is, and that's anyone who isn't white. If we could get on that same page as black and brown people and stop the infighting in terms of what direction our messaging should be. I like to say that even Wakanda had diversity and that includes all segments of black and brown communities to come together to fight for the equity and equality that we so desperately want and deserve. Absolutely, and Mike, we'll give you the last word and the final few seconds about the next steps in pushing for change in honor of George Floyd's legacy. 
Well, one, thank you guys all for having me, Evan. It's so great to meet you too as well. I look forward to being in touch further with you and in Erica. And I've known Cena for so long. So, you know, I'm just so proud of you. So proud of the work that you've done. Uh, I think I've watched you grow up. <laughs> so you're doing amazing work <laughs> and you're an incredible journalist. And so thank you all for having me and the entire Black Enterprise family. Uh, final thoughts is really short. It's focused on local elections. Local elections matter. Um, the local is how we actually change criminal justice and actually change the police reform. I know everybody's waiting for it to happen in Congress, but it really happens with your mayor, your police chief, the district attorney, and a judge, go to votequadrant.com, figure out um, how to make that system work and how to make change and be the change that we want to see. Um, also, too, if you're looking for uh, legal and uh, defense work in order to help you out your cases, please check us out at lawchamps.com uh, in every city, every state. Happy to work with you guys. Absolutely. Mike's always a pleasure catching up and happy to have you here and be heard talk. I'll just end this segment and the show by saying this. In the words of Gianna Floyd, George Floyd's seven-year-old daughter, George Floyd changed the world. We all remember when she said, daddy changed the world. He did. He changed the world. He disrupted all aspects of our lives, politics, business, sports. Everyone has been talking about George Floyd because we all saw this man lynched. But now it's up to us to continue to push, rally, petition, call our legislators, fund campaigns of elected officials of elected officials who are going to represent us our interests and our needs and make sure that the the people we are paying to serve and protect are doing just that and if not then it's time to get rid of the system if you ask me on that note i want to thank everyone for tuning in to be her talk special thanks again to mike muse erica cobb and of course Evan Mastronardi. We won't see you next weekend because it's Memorial Day weekend, but we'll see you here again in June. Take care, guys.